A new pattern of oppression replacing the old slave system was growing up in the South. The plantation owners, shorn of their source of power by emancipation, devised new methods of reducing the freedman to a state of peonage that would keep him bound hand and foot to the plantation. Terrorist societies, such as the Ku Klux Klan, swept down upon Negroes who dared to protest the violation of their rights. Any Negro community which sought to defend its civil liberties soon found its churches and schools a smoking shambles. Soon, as a result of this terror, the constitutional amendments adopted after the Civil War became little better than a mockery of freedom. When I met delegates at Negro conventions who had lived through the horrors of seeing their families massacred, their churches and schools burned to the ground, and their homes left in smoking ruins, I realized the ridiculousness of the contention that my work was over. Constitutional amendments guaranteeing the Negro equality and fair play looked very well in print, I reminded my friends. But law on the statute book and law and the practice of the nation are two very different things and sometimes very opposite things. What were the 14th and 15th amendments worth to the victims of the Klan terror? What did the ballot mean to men reduced to a state of peonage? At the South, I argued in speech after speech, the Negro dependent upon his enemy for his daily bread cannot long vote or act contrary to the will of those to whom he must necessarily look for food and raiment which he must have. It is a grand thing to have rights secured by constitutional provision and by legal enactments but without a public opinion and the government to enforce them, they are a mockery. To be one half freeman and the other half slave, to be a citizen and yet treated as an alien, to be a man and yet not be a man among men may do for monsters, but not for genuine manhood. To those who called for a halt to agitation on the Negro question, I replied, we certainly hope that the time will come when the colored man in America shall cease to require the special efforts to guard these rights and advance their interests as a class. But that time has not yet come and is not even at the door. When the doors of nearly every workshop in the land are closed against the colored race and the highest callings open to them are of a menial character, while a colored gentleman is compelled to walk the streets of our large cities like New York unable to obtain admission to public hotels, while staterooms are refused in our steamboats and berths are refused in our sleeping cars on account of color, and the Negro is a byword and a hissing at every corner. The Negro is not abolished as a degraded caste, nor need his friends shut up shop and cease to make his advancement in the scale of civilized life a special work. What Abraham Lincoln said in respect to the United States is as true of the colored people as of the relation of those states. They cannot remain half slave and half free. You must give them all or take from them all until this half and half condition is ended there will be a just ground of complaint you will have an aggrieved class 
and this discussion will go on until the public schools shall cease to be cast schools in every part of this country this discussion will go on until the colored man's pathway to the American ballot box north and south shall be as smooth and as safe as the same is for the white citizens this discussion will go on until the colored man's right to practice at the bars of our courts and sit upon juries shall be the universal law and practice of the land this discussion will go on until the courts of the country shall grant the colored man a fair trial and a just verdict this discussion will go on until color cease to be a bar to equal participation in offices and honors of the country this discussion will go on until the trade unions and the workshops of the country shall cease to proscribe the colored man and prevent his children from learning useful trades this discussion will go on until the american people shall make character and not color the criterion of respectability this discussion will go on with this warning to the american people i bring my story to its end i can remember when as a boy i sat on kenard's wharf at the foot of philpot street in baltimore and saw men and women chained and put on the ship to go to new orleans i then resolved that whatever power i had should be devoted to the freeing of my race thereafter in the midst of all opposition i have endeavored to fulfill my pledge 40 years of my life have been given to the cause of my people and if i had 40 years more they should all be sacredly given to that great cause Greetings, everyone. We are live from the plantation once again. Um, happy for everyone to join us tonight for day four of this exciting event where we've been talking about the Thirteenth Amendment, um, talking about the institution of slavery in the United States, and just had a, a great list of speakers. So many, so much great support. So many people have been tuning in, following, sharing. We actually, if you're listening tonight, continue to share. Please share the platform. Um, share this event. Um, if you want to call in for live from the plantation blog talk radio show, our number is five one five six zero five nine eight one four. And we're just going to go ahead and get started. Without any further delay, we'll be starting off the night with um, um, Ivan Kilgore, and I also have a co-host in tonight, uh, Sister Savannah Eldridge from Be Frank for Justice. She'll be joining us tonight, and so we're going to turn it over to Savannah, and she's going to introduce our first speaker. Tenacity and oppression, opposition, he is truly 
an exception to the norm, having founded and established the United Black Family Scholarship Foundation from within personal walls, an accomplished author, lecturer, and advocate for human rights. His passion to write is driven by a need to survive, a need to understand and navigate the political, historical, and cultural forces that operate to hold him captive, both physically and mentally. Without question, the ink that spills from his pen is a reality check. His writings are confrontational in that they expose the fallacy of a common worldwide uh, worldview painted by the lack of compassion and morality. To learn more about Ivan um, or the United Black Family Scholarship Foundation, log on to ubffsf.org. Ivan, you're on. They call me cocaine, cocaine, yeah, yo, coca, cheese, whatever you want to say, bro. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. It ain't humdrum, and we all know where it's at, everywhere. But where it comes from, tell me, Mount of Columbia and Peru, extracted from the. To speak on the subject that has all grave affected our community. And today, what I would like to talk to you guys about and share a little bit is uh, the war on drugs. Now, we know that this is something that when we look into the inner city, Chicago, L.A., uh, New York, we have seen the media for the last 30 or 40 years or so play this out and, and show us the impact that it's been having on our communities. But what I want to speak to you guys about today is having resided in any small towns and being born and raised in Oklahoma, uh, particularly Walk Oklahoma, which is like four or five minutes southeast of Oklahoma City. Uh small town, you're talking about maybe three thousand people. And you can walk from one end of town to the other. And what I want to talk to you about is how I was able to witness up close and personal the catalyzing effects of President Reagan's so called war on drugs. And so like in we walk, for example, you had like the, the local authorities had maybe three or four squad cars. You know, you're talking about a police force with just three cars. Uh, maybe a sheriff, county sheriff uh, division of maybe five to ten cars. And so as small as it was, the drug rate in terms of per capita was said to be in excess of Los Angeles, California. So, you know, considering that the locals didn't have the resources and necessarily put a damper on it, you can imagine that we pretty much exploited their ability to the fullest. You know, as young hustlers out there, you know, a lot of us weren't thinking about, you know, the impact this was having on our community. And so, as I'm going to explain as we move forward, uh, how we saw this as I began. So, when I think back to, like, the 80s, you know, 85, 86, 87, we woke them. It was to the drug dealers of Macomb County, which was similar to what Tijuana, Mexico was to the Colombian and Mexican drug cartels, which was a drug trafficking. I mean, things were so off the chain in terms of the dope game, it seemed as if everybody black either smoked dope or sold dope. And, you know, occasionally uh, things were disrupted by federal authorities. And this was because, again, the locals did not have resources to do any type of long-term investigation or anything like that. So as you can imagine, when the feds came in and made their arrests, 
what we also saw were the penalties. So you had people who had addiction problems and stuff that were just simple runners was getting caught up in doing, you know, 17 years in the feds just for a basic conspiracy charge, or they were getting hit with an eight piece. And, you know, what was interesting about this, I remember one time I'm sitting uh, in the county jail and I'm fighting a case. And I see they, the feds come and they do a bust. So it's 300 different agencies. We're talking about local, state, neighboring county, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, the DEA, uh, the IRS. And when they come in, it's such, you know, it makes for such a spectacle. The city, it was reminiscent of slavery because there were so many people that they arrested that they didn't have enough shackles to uh body, so they had to shackle them together. And it's, it reminds you of something just off a, a slave ship. So eventually, you see, I would see a lot of partners because of this, uh, see the inside of a federal prison. And despite these efforts, here's where the state repression, I say, was fruitful when it came to curbing local drug uh, activity because, you know, as we've seen, as we've seen in uh, throughout history, uh, things like this was anticipated by the likes of Ray. I'm going to explain that here momentarily why I say that. Uh, because when it came to repressing the local drug economy, not only did it have to fail, but to make room for the next generation of drug dealers, but it also had to fail in order to boost the American economy. So what we saw was, if anything was to come from these efforts, was the untrolled trillions of dollars that went into the U.S. economy uh, that the government around the nation made off drug deals uh, for the world for that much. And so we've seen a lot of things going on, like in my backyard, you know, with the addiction, which I don't think deserves very much explanation, but these things and what was going on in the home at the time, particularly with my mother uh, struggling from addiction herself, uh, this roller coaster ride of unemployment and, you know, circumstances basically forcing our hand to get in the game. So what basically started as a hustle for many of us ended in addiction. And so I remember, I think it was, I think it was 85, 86, maybe, yeah, about 86, my mom's and I, we had taken this drive uh, to a short uh, suburb outside of Boca called New Lama. And I'm sitting in the back seat here hustling as a kid. I'm eleven years old at this time, I recall right. And her and her friend are talking about this new drug, which was crack cocaine. And, you know, it wouldn't be long after that before Hustler 2 was connecting dots and tracking this from distant shipping ports to home base. Now, let's be mindful, Oklahoma is in the heartland. No shipping ports. But yeah, we got the largest drug economy per capita than any major city in the United States. And so as the story goes, uh, from privileged households to uh, lower class, I seen and had a front row seat to watch. I seen a, a front row seat to watch the drug cocaine industry flourish. And so what was once a rich man's heart became a poor man's addiction. And of course, you know, many of us who were ignorant of the effects. And I was like, you know, looking at this from a kid, you really don't understand everything that's going on in terms of the political context. So we would see, we would see, for example, 
relationships uh, in our community, the bonds, the community bonds and stuff, they were just on nightfall. I'm talking about we went from being, you know, uh, humble kids on the block, break dancing for fun, to drug, to, to drug and strapped up onto the teeth. It's about stealing kids for the smallest of a trade. And so, you know, the first time that we had, you know, an issue or some problems happened, you know, we turned on each other because that foundation that we once had that made our community so strong despite our economic circumstances had now been, you know, exchanged for something that, you know, as I always say, game got so cold that we would literally give you a piece of dough before we give you something to eat. And once that happened, the block basically went from something from a community to uh, a neighborhood represented by gang of trap stars and a place not to be so much respected in so far as the community, the greater community that is, but a place to be respected to make dope or the next. And so what happened, we saw how this, this, this cocaine thing basically enslaved the minds of both the dealer and the dope in life. And at one end of the pipe, you had somebody who was, you know, living in pipe dreams and trying to escape reality. And then at the other, you had this young kid like myself uh, trying to escape poverty and, you know, obtain wealth, power, and money. And, you know, so, you know, as many of us know in the South, fighting for education had been something that the generations before us had through the civil rights movement advocated for to get us in the colleges, to get us in schools. Yet the need for diplomas and degrees would go out the door as young black men, as I say, uh, flood the streets in the pursuit of happiness with this drug trade. And despite, uh, you know, my mother's addiction, you know, she remained very adamant about my education. And so much so I often tell people left webs on that. And so, you know, I figured it out early on that it didn't take a, a degree or a diploma to get rich. You know, basically all the cat needed was a mason jar, a baking soda, and presto, you know, dope boy magic did the rest. And so there it was there. Uh, for the first time, we had this means that seemingly provided this uh, financial security for those of us who were trapped in poverty. And, you know, crack cocaine would become something that would create an opportunity. And I say opportunity for lack of better expression, uh, because with other drugs, large-scale drug economy really didn't exist, say, with the marijuana uh, at the time. So what we saw was, and I explained to people that the reason why we saw this with the cocaine was because, again, the politics behind it. And so little did we know in the 80s, you know, 84, 85, what was going on in Central America, South America, with the Contras or Congress, uh, you know, amending what they call the Boiling Amendment Act and cutting aid to a lot of these guerrilla and communist organizations down there. And so as a result of that, what we saw, and I remember as it was yesterday, uh, watching these Senate committee hearings and during these Senate committee hearings, it was this dude, uh, I think his name was Lieutenant Oliver Lewis. And so, you know, they would talk about it, the conscience, and, you know, I'm really not understanding what all this stuff was about as a kid. And, you know, as time went on and I became more versed in political history, what I learned was at this particular time in 
uh, American history, what was happening was the United States was trying to overthrow a lot of the communist regimes throughout Central America and Colombia. And so they was using these different guerrilla armies, and at one point they were funding them, but the funding got cut off. And once the funding got cut off, uh, Oliver Moore, he gives them a green light to basically get it the best way they can. And this is where we hear stories like the free range and the tons of the cocaine pumping to the ghettos of America because what became a source of funding for these organizations like the Contras was the cocaine dumping it into black America. And the second thing that we saw was after they overthrew these communist regimes and the wheels of uh, capitalism began to spread in these different countries. Uh, the North American trade group would come in, and you would see the exploitation of American big business and quasi third world uh, slave labor uh, manning these foreign manufacturing companies. So now, what's happening? We had local factories in our hometown, like uh, Wrangler Jeans, and these were the ideal places at the time where people could get jobs and maintain their families, keep some sense of tradition and social life and climbing the economic ladder to get college. Well, as soon as that NAFTA kicked in, all them jobs was gone. They was out there. And so now you got all these brothers overnight, particularly blacks and Latinos, uh, we found that our labor was no longer beneath. And, yeah, we were left with mouths and feet. And so this is where the drugs come in. Small town, country boy, trap store. You know, you wouldn't think you pull into a place full of dirt roads, you would find a trap house boarded up, you know, with, with bars and AKs and all this stuff. But it was real. And, you know, as a kid, you're not understanding the politics of what's going on in another country and how that's impacting your community. And so... As I look back over this, and this is why I'm getting to the second part, the war on drugs was in the right. And like many other rhetorical wars announced by politicians and enacted by political institutions, such as the legislators, the courts, uh, and prisons, it has deeper social and economic racial agendas, which was essentially to uh, disenfranchise record numbers of young Black men, young Latino men, people of color, due to the related race and racially changed drug laws, such as powder versus crack cocaine. And what we saw with those I mentioned earlier, a lot of the brothers who fight an addiction, they get in these statues and they go in there in 211 months. And what would happen eventually, you know, we would lose all momentum in terms of what strides we're made during the civil rights era in terms of our voting rights and what have you. And eventually, you know, we would see this crime and welfare reform. You know, uh, America's right wing beating machine would come in and basically you would see these crack babies and, you know, drug-related violence. And they would use this to elevate this so-called war from a rhetorical war to a one. Well, now we're starting to see the mass development of prisons. You know, California, for example, you talk about a state that in, I think at 1982 maybe had, what, 10 prisons? And by the end of the decade, they had only 30. And so without question, I always say that, you know, this war on drugs was a recipe for domestic genocide 
and because it created this repository of ghetto youth to feed into Reagan's political ambitions. And a lot of times when I talk about Reagan, most people don't make the connection between Reagan as the governor and Reagan as the president. Because Reagan was the governor, that's when he started his war in the black community. This is when Nixon was in office. And he was fighting the heroin trade in, in, in Southeast Asia. That's what I'm about to get to. And yet, Reagan went over here waging the war against the black nationalism, the black panthers, and so forth. So Reagan would take that war from the California's governor's office into the U.S. president's office. And so what we would see happen, he would grab a hold of this war on drugs thing and use it as a tool to mask the deeper racial agendas. And here we know that, you know, history has pretty much told us that this war didn't do anything to curb it, the use of drugs or the drug trade. Uh, it didn't do nothing but basically, you know, make things worse. And so to this end, I remember a while back I was reading something uh, from this New York Times reporter. And what he was talking about, uh, he used this metaphor. And in this metaphor, he, he tells the history of America's first drug war. And so what we seen in 1971, 72, with President Rich, uh, uh, Nixon, he so-called you are unmuted. this new market heroin, uh, Southeast Asian heroin, by declaring this war on drug war. So you are muted. Strong diplomatic pressure. You know, he f- works with the governments in Turkey and France, and they're able to eradicate the, the opium fields, which at that time was uh, supplying America over 80% of heroin. And as a result of what they thought was a victory, it unleashed market forces that would soon expand drug trafficking on five different countries. Because when they came in and hit, all those dudes kind of spread out around the world because these were major players. And so what we saw was America's first drug war strengthening the global narcotics traffic. And so by the 1970s, you know, we was hearing stuff about the uh, Italian mafia being involved in New York, spreading out to Vegas, uh, L.A., and, you know, Oakland. And we've heard, you know, the stories about how the Black Panthers, you know, was infiltrated with heroin and things like that. And so, as McCoy explains this, when what happens, he says, you know, and I'm quoting him here, he says, conventional literary metaphors basically seem too flat if not too linear to convey the explosive vitality of the global drug market. And his relentless pursuit of drug dealers across the arc of Asia. President Nixon seems rather like Mickey Mouse. Yeah, Mickey Mouse as in the Disney film Fantasia. When, you know, there's these flood waters stemming from this flood. He's attacking the bucket, carrying bulls with an axe. And it falls, it all falls short. And these, these, once he starts chopping them, they start splitting and multiplying. And so as things go on, what we see is the same thing happening in with the cocaine trade, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when they came in and arrested some guys, took some brothers off the block, they didn't even you know, create more positions for more people to come in. And as a result of everything that happened, uh, it now blew out of portion, and we was left with 
refugees that was ravaged by this trade because the economic stability had been undermined with the outsources of jobs. The social and community fabric had been undermined with the destruction of community ties. And so that left us in this state to where in 2021, we now see in the streets of cities like Boston, Chicago, this, this, this massive, you know, gang, drug, violence, all this stuff, and a lot of people are not even really connecting the dots of how a lot of the so-called drugs and addiction had actually made the problem worse. Um, Brother Ivan, I wanted to ask you... I'm going to cut this one short because somebody said I had two minutes left on here. All right. Thanks a lot, um, Ivan. Um, We're going to keep Ivan on. Yeah, I'm going to turn it back over to Savannah. Is that so? Yeah, and uh, we're going to uh, bring you back. Ho- uh, we would like for you to stay, stay on the line okay. so that we can um, come back and uh, follow up with a few questions. Um, one question I did want to ask, though, before we let you go is... The host would like you to unmute your microphone. You can Thank press you so star. Much. You are I appreciate unmuted. all of your, um, your information tonight. It was much appreciated. Yeah. Ivan, I did have one question I want to ask for before you go. Um, you talked about how these drugs came into the communities, and you talked about how the the jobs, and you specifically used a manufacturing job that was taken out of the community and taken overseas. Um, as it relates to the 13th Amendment, can you just give us a brief co- uh, connection between how drugs are also used in this um continuation of, of keeping the prisons full with black bodies, brown bodies, poor people to keep the, the, the 13th Amendment and the institution of uh, slavery continuing to go on in America? Well, I think I think what we have to look at is when the manufacturing drives left and our community bonds were shattered, uh, it created a repository of individuals who were now what they call the disposable class of unemployed, uneducated, and these are more likely to create crime. And so the drugs were simply a carrot on a stick in terms of, okay, if you want to make a way for yourself and you want to survive, here, we'll put this poison in your community and, you know, adopt the first rule of nature, which is self-preservation, and, you know, necessity knows no law. So now you got the drugs out here getting the best way they can they come into prison now as a result of the convictions with drugs. And when you get in prison, what you have to understand is the dynamic is still the same in terms of how the drug is even being used to uh, manipulate the population. And, you know, guys who are still working in prison factories because, you know, the jobs may have left on the streets and went out to, you know, cross the borders, but they also came inside of the prison system. And when they came into the prison system, one of the ways to effectively control the prison population was through the use of drugs because we all know that, you know, those, the chemical imbalance and a lot of that stuff causes uh, to have a person in the best position to put up in the resistance. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot, um, Ivan. Uh, we appreciate your contribution. Um, what we're going to do at this time, we're going to move right along into our next speaker, Brother Kinetic Justice Amon, uh, who's incarcerated in the state of Alabama. He's the new African's political prisoner of war. Uh, Kinetic has been incarcerated for 26 years, at, at the, beginning at the age of 20, 
he was defending himself and he was convicted of killing a white man whose intent was to bring bodily harm to him. Um, the victim in the case was a, a U.S. National Guardsman, Ronald Henderson, the son of a prominent family of affluent, of affluent and a cousin of the mayor in the county that he was convicted. Uh, the tragedy for which kinetic justice is serving the capital murder sentence of life without parole was a setup for his demise due to relationships of white privilege. Upon entering prison, Kinetic has embraced and nurtured a revolutionary education by warrior and ancestor Richard Mofundi Lake. He became, he became a political prisoner. For the last 21 years, Kinetic has played a major role in confronting the ignorance of our people and challenging the systematic exploitation of our people confined in Alabama. Kinetic Justice is also a co-founder of the Free Alabama Movement, a nonviolent and peaceful protest human and civil rights organization for all prisoners in America. He is also a curriculum developer for the Universal Peace and Unity Movement. Kinetic is also a jailhouse attorney who has been working uh, to assist people in the law for over 20 years. And it's an honor and a privilege uh, for me to introduce Brother Kinetic Judge. <laughs> uh, gratitude, gratitude. You can hear me, Conrad. We can hear you well, Brother Kinetic. Go ahead. All right. Well, peace and blessings to everyone. Uh, first and foremost, you uh, are muted. Uh, I want to uh, extend <clears throat> extend my uh, blessings uh, to all those listening. Uh, the host would like time. you to unmute your microphone. You can press star six to unmute. The host would like you to unmute your microphone. You can press star six mm -hmm. to unmute. You are unmuted. Brother Kinetic, you there? Okay, I'm here. Can you hear me? We we hear you. Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Uh, as I was saying, uh, first and foremost, I extend my uh, my gratitude to uh, Sister Savannah, uh, Brother Benu, uh, the Plus Organization, uh, Brother Max Parthas, and all those on the Free the Thirteenth Committee uh, for the work that they've been putting in. Uh, all throughout this week, well, all throughout this month, and organizing these events. Uh, but I definitely like to extend my gratitude uh, for the invitation uh, for me to come on and to share uh, my insight uh, on the prison industrial complex. Uh, well, first of all, uh, this is an event dealing with the 13th Amendment. Therefore, I definitely want to celebrate uh, the continued exposure uh, of this travesty, the biggest lie that's been told to us. Uh, they tell us that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, and they leave it at that, and that's been the narrative uh, for hundreds of, uh, over 150 years. Uh, but the reality is, uh, in the next breath, uh, they established uh, slavery by another name, uh, which eventually became the Department of Corrections uh, from the plantations on up. So I definitely like to celebrate and uh, recognize uh, the work that's being put in by those to expose that lie and to rectify it. Uh, and that ties in directly to uh, uh, the prison industrial complex today, as we see. You are muted. Uh, uh, me personally, uh, me personally, I believe that we should take the story back to uh, 1994, uh, when one of the most major incidents occurred. You're, uh, in, you're muted, brother. Connecticut. Am I? Kinetic, you there? You're muted. 
I'm not connect every muted. now and then. I, I'll hear it. You are muted, and I think that's what is happening. I don't know if you hear that message. Hey, can you hear? You, you, you muted the call. We we heard you all the way up to the Thirteenth Amendment, and you were talking uh, about in the next breath, and then you got muted. Okay. Uh, yeah. What I was saying, I was just recognizing. The host would the, like you to unmute your microphone. You can press uh, star six to unmute. You are unmuted. Is there a brother standing? Yes, I'm right here. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, sir. We hear you now. That's not your As line, uh, Kinetic. Just disregard it. If you hear that, don't just disregard. That's not pertaining to your line. Okay, okay. So you can hear me? Yes, we can hear you fine. Well, I apologize for the interruptions, but uh, but as I was saying, uh, uh, the biggest lie that's been told to us in America is that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, and that's been the narrative that's been told for over 150 years. Uh, but the reality of that situation is that the 13th Amendment uh, did say that slavery was to be abolished. However, in the next breath, it established an exception, uh, which in de facto created slavery by another name uh, that eventually became what we know of today as the Department of Corrections. Uh, and this uh, ties in directly to uh, what I'm be speaking on tonight, uh, and that's a reflection back on uh, the prison industrial complex for the last 26 years, uh, because 26 years was monumental uh, in this conversation about mass incarceration. Uh, as brother was just speaking on earlier about the war on drugs, uh, right behind uh, the war on drugs, they came with uh, what was termed a war on gangs. And in the early 1990s, uh, they demonized young black males and put them in the category of all being gang members and immediately uh, sensationalized a lot of situations and went into legislation and created uh, the so-called gang laws. I know specifically in the state of Alabama, it was in 1992 uh, when they expanded the, the capital murder statute to include uh, so-called gang-related uh, cases. Uh, but at that time, uh, Bill Clinton and his entourage was promoting a theory that uh, psychologists had said that this super predator was on the way, that these young black males had no conscience, uh, that they were incorrigible. Therefore, they needed to be killed or locked away forever. And in the beginning of 1994, while these conversations were going on, uh, a lot of things were going on in my life as well. Uh, in the beginning of 94, uh, my daughter was born. So I had a, a perspective on life like everything was in front of me. Uh, four months later, I was charged with two capital murder cases in an incident where I was merely trying to stop somebody from hurting me. Uh, but I got to understand that uh, race plays a big part in the justice system uh, through that situation. But two months after I was charged with capital murder, Bill Clinton signed into law the largest crime bill in U.S. history, uh, which we refer to as uh, the crime bill, or some have now taken the term of saying Biden's crime law as Joe Biden was uh, one of the main people who helped draft up this legislation that would eventually uh, place uh, the prison industrial complex on steroids and begin a massive boom 
in building of prisons and incarcerating people. As through this uh, this largest crime bill, uh, what they did was they hyperly incentivized incarceration. That they literally gave states billions and billions of dollars to build prisons and to hire more police officers. And the more prisons you built and the more police officers you had, the more money you got. And the more people you incarcerated, the more money you got. So it tied right back into the economical system uh, of slavery because a lot of people confuse slavery, the institution, with slavery as the conditions of slavery. We think about, you know, people being whipped. We think about people being hanged. And we think about, you know, mothers having their babies ripped out of their stomach. And those are the images that we have of slavery. That's not slavery. That is terrorism and the conditions that they use to keep people enslaved. This was to terrorize people. But slavery was actually an economical situation where people were working for free where people were actually contributing their labor to creating wealth for other people, but were receiving nothing. And that's exactly what the prison industrial complex is based on, on extracting labor and resources from people they're not paying. And this system created an incentive to create more laws to lock people up for longer time, to massively incarcerate them. Uh, in the state of Alabama over the years as I've experienced the impact of the crime bill. You know, a lot of people talk about the crime bill, the statistics, how the prison population boomed, how they built all these prisons, how all these people got rich, how, you know, private corporations and this, but the actual effect uh, of what was going on on the inside as, you know, for an extended period of time, they brought the chain game back to Alabama. So they was actually working brothers on the side of the road with chains on uh, in the 21st century. So, you know, that was going on. I was seeing where the prison was so overcrowded that they added a third bed uh, to their bunk bed. So they were three people high. Uh, where areas that used to be day space, they were filled up with beds. And you had people everywhere. And, you know, the sanitation was uh, below third world. As you know, you got hundreds and hundreds of men crammed into spaces designed for not more than 100 men. And, you know, things get kind of nasty and disease and bacteria, uh, attitudes, you know, the violence. And I watched over the years how the impact of the crime bill has destroyed so many lives, has destroyed our community, have ripped fathers and brothers and, you know, even mothers and daughters out of our communities and incarcerated them for decades and you know a lot of our brothers and sisters uh that came into the system in that 94 gap uh are still here are still in these prisons because they have these mandatory sentences a mandatory life without parole sentence uh and without changes in the law then you know they'll die in prison behind uh a crime bill that was based on false intelligence you know the statistics and so forth were lies that were presented in order to promote this crime bill so that the rich could get filthy richer uh, because that's exactly what happened uh, throughout the prison system. You know, they generated money on top of money that was extracted from the prisons and 
given to politician and, you know, prison commissioners and, and divided up amongst these states. And this has to stop. And that was the message that I was given from the intro. Uh, I came, as uh, the brother stated, I came into prison at 20 years old and was sent to Alabama's most dangerous and most violent prison in the state. I was sent to Holman as a 20-year-old. Didn't know not one person. But it was something about my character and something about the way I carried myself that made the right kind of brothers take an interest in me and pull me to the side and teach me and educate me and what being black meant and what being an activist meant and what being a fighter really meant. Uh, and I always pay homage uh, to, you know, to my mentor, my teacher, my godfather, you know, the ancestor, uh, Mr. Mafundi Lake, uh, because without him, I don't know what direction I would have took in prison. But I'm glad that I was uh, introduced to him and, and led and guided by him uh, because it shaped and molded the man that I became uh, throughout this prison journey. Uh, like his brother say, for, for a lot of years, I, I've been a part of this struggle. And I've seen it firsthand, and I understand what, what this system is about. And I, to a certain degree, uh, know exactly what needs to be done to correct this situation. Uh, as I've seen through experience, you know, different struggles uh, in the prison. Uh, we studied uh, George Jackson and understood the movements uh, in California. Uh, we studied uh, on the Brothers in Attica and understood uh, the human rights struggle there. Uh, we studied the IFA uh, with Brother Gamble and Brother Mr. Mufundi and them here in Alabama. And I learned about uh, standing up and fighting and being uh, on point when you write. And through that process, you know, I, I was taught the law, I was taught real estate, I was taught philosophy, and I was taught just about everything that the elders felt that I needed uh, for this journey because it was obvious that this was set out because I was taught all the things I needed to be taught in order to be in a position to speak for and to understand the conditions of what was going on in the Alabama prison system and to be able to articulate that to an audience uh, to actually receive attention, to bring attention to the situation of brothers in Alabama that uh, we are on the pathway to, you know, rectifying some of these things, getting some of the help uh, that we need uh, in dealing with uh, these laws as well as the parole board uh, all the way into the conditions of these prisons. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's just been a journey uh, of self-discovery for me. And I just think everybody that has been a part of this process of, uh, you know, educating people, organizing people, and, you know, trying to get the work done, uh, trying to get them uh, to amend and rectify the 13th Amendment, you know, trying to get them to rescind a lot of the mandatory minimums of the crime bill, uh, to take away money uh, from incentivizing uh, police departments and district attorney offices and, and prisons to keep people incarcerated. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's a monumental task. And, you know, I take my hat off and I salute uh, all the brothers and sisters uh, who follow their conscience and who stand for what's right and who have the courage to continue to do this day in and day out uh, because it's going to take a consistent and collective effort uh, from us as a people uh, to turn things around, not just with uh, the prison industrial complex, uh, but with America as a whole. Uh, we had a we in a crisis, and we're at a fork in the road, and it's time for us to make a decision 
to do something different uh, than what we have been doing. Uh, because the motto is that if you want something different, you have to do something different. And that's what we're proposing uh, at Free Alabama Movement. Uh, we're proposing that we do something different than go along to get along. Uh, it's time that we be direct with our action. It's time that we be firm with our action. It's time that we be consistent with our action. But first and foremost, we must unify and be collective with our action. And I peace and hotel from the from the panel with that. Um, Connecticut, can you hold on for a second? Let's see if we have any questions. Uh, do we have any questions on the line, Lulu? You do have a caller here on on uh, live from the plantation. Okay. Um, well, let's go ahead and bring the caller on. Let's listen to the caller, and then um, we'll turn it over to Savannah. She's going to introduce our next speaker. So I guess we'll go ahead and take a call. Thanks to everyone for listening in. This is Live from the Plantation, day four, uh, the 3 to 13th uh, virtual rally. Uh, myself and Sister Savannah Eldridge are your co-hosts tonight. Uh, we just got through listening to, to Kinetic Justice Amon, the co-founder of Free Alabama Movement, talking about the 1994 crime bill. Uh, we've heard so much about that lately with um, Joe Biden running for president. Let's go ahead and bring on the caller, Matt. All right, 9520, you are live from the plantation. Nine five two. Oh, go ahead, caller. You might want to unmute Hello. Um, good. Good evening. It's, it's uh, Elijah Macon. I didn't have my hand up. Actually, the phone kept saying that um, it, the host wanted me to unmute, and it was muting and unmuting my <laughs> phone at the same time. So that's that's why I ended up in the host's box. But at the same uh, okay. time, man, I just want all right. To take all my right. hand no off. No problem. Well. I, no I problem. We're going to go ahead and uh, we'll, we'll get back to you after the oh. end. Of, we want to go ahead and stay on, on, on format with our program. We thought you okay. wanted to speak. What we're going to do is go ahead and turn it over to Sister Savannah. She's going to introduce our next caller. and I'm, I'm sorry, our next speaker. All righty. Um, our next speaker is uh, Brother Keith Malik Washington. Uh, Keith Malik Washington is the assistant editor of the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper, and he's the co-founder of In Prison Slavery in Texas Movement and an activist in the Fight Toxic Prisons and Liberate the Cage Voices campaign. He's also a comrade of the Oakland Abolition and Solidarity Movement and a fellow worker in the Fight to Abolish Prisons. His contact information uh, will be left in the comment section if you'd like to contact him. And uh, with that, I'll leave it uh, to Brother Malik. Thank you, Savannah. And I would like to um, thank you for organizing this. And I want to thank everyone for attending. Um, Max Parthas, I thank you for giving me some time and space to discuss some issues with you. and. Um, I just want to tell everybody that you've done a phenomenal job and we must continue to press on and to organize collectively and to butt up against and confront modern day slavery that is being visited upon millions of our sisters and brothers here in the United Snakes of America. Now, if you thought that I was going to come here, some Jeff and ass house Negro rhetoric, you're wrong, because I'm not. I'm a voice basically coming out of Texas. You ain't going to hear a whole bunch of voices coming out of Texas, because Texas is one of the most repressive, abusive, 
totalitarian, racist states in America. You ain't going to hear too many brothers and sisters speaking truth to power in Texas because there's a highly sophisticated program of repression and abuse being visited upon our sisters and brothers that are incarcerated. But then you have sisters like Savannah who step out on faith to confront these oppressors, and she is basically putting herself on the front line because they're going to be coming after her too. It's real. So I was incarcerated in the state of Texas for 12 years, and I can speak from a position of strength and knowledge of the exploitation of free prison labor in Texas. I had the Aggie in my hand. I was out in them fields picking beans, picking corn. Your one is up, your two is down. Let me hear that Aggie pound. Yeah, singing them damn stupid-ass cadences. I used to work at H-E-B, now I work for PDC. But I wasn't working. I can't hear him. I lost. I think we lost me, I'm back, but y'all tell me when y'all can hear me. All we can sudden. hear you. Okay. So what I was saying was I was actually incarcerated in the state of Texas for 12 years, and I was subjected to the inhumane mistreatment, torture, and abuse at the hands of the administrators in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. I worked as a free prison slave, picking them beans, picking the corn, tilling their fields for free. None of the work that I did was compensated. It wasn't work. That was slave ship. Well, slavery wasn't work. They wasn't giving me any kind of um, benefits, acknowledging the work time and the good time, that fake-ass shit that they got on, the, on that inmate slip they give you. They give you a slip, an inmate time slip, and it says good time, flat time, work time, bonus time. It's all just smoke and mirrors. They weren't giving us anything. Time and time, I was denied parole six times in a row. First time offender in Texas. I wasn't coming in and out of Texas. There was guys I knew that came in and out six, seven times. And, but they kept me down there for a reason, because I was politicized and I spoke truth to power. They didn't like that. And I was exposing the injustices that continue to happen. But what you need to understand is that there is wickedness in high places in the state of Texas. You have collusion in high levels of the government that are allowing the perpetuation of slavery to be visited upon the prisoners in Texas. You have the governor, not the governor's office. I'm talking about Greg Abbott. Yeah, he's an undercover, undercover white supremacist and racist, along with Ken Paxton. Oh, they don't want to hear those names. Ken Paxton, who is currently under indictment. Oh, you currently under indictment? Yes, every time we file a lawsuit to, to actually combat or confront these inhumane conditions inside your prisons, you go and hire one of your minions to go and represent the state's position when you know good and well that that deadly extreme heat in Texas is killing us every summer. You know good and well that Texas has one of the highest rates of death as a result of their failed response to COVID-19. And Alec, and Alec has the nerve 
to give Governor Greg Abbott a reward. A reward for what? For having the most populous state prison complex in the United States? Oh, you don't want to, you don't want me to talk about that. The good thing is I'm amongst friends and comrades, and I can speak this truth. So while I was inside the prison, I worked as a happy slave. I was, I, at first, I was a happy slave. I was picking them greens, picking that corn. Now, all of a sudden, the internet connection is unstable. Now we're at the point where we're working for free. And we want to try to raise the awareness of the prisoners inside. Savannah said the other day, she can't work harder than the prisoners. She's going to work out here working harder for the prisoners that are inside. I just left the inside. And I can tell you 80% of the prisoners in Texas and in the feds are smoking K2. It's high as a kite. Prisoners like Kinetic, prisoners like Ivan, prisoners like myself, we are the, we are the exception. We're not the norm. Don't see everybody in there getting high. They ain't, they ain't worried about what's going on. So we strive our best to try to raise the awareness with publications like the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper to raise their awareness, right, to try to awaken them up so that they'll say, you know what, we tired of our good time and our work time not counting to the reduction of our sentences. So when they call work call, don't go out your cell. Lay in the bed. Let them crops rot in the damn fields. And, you, and so we, Kinetic Justice, the brothers Hashima, these brothers from all over the United States, okay, who are the tip of the spear of this movement, we are all in alignment. We understand the dynamic that we have to do some action, and it don't have to be violent action. How hard is it just to say, I ain't going out to work today. Okay? So we need modern-day Nat Turners, modern-day Denmark Vessies. And it doesn't have to be the overt amount of violence. All it has to do is you get a made-up mind to say that you will not be treated and exploited as a slave. And I promise you, this is how it works. When you stop working for free, you are going to start striking at the bottom line. She, Savannah said the other day, she was saying what they made, $84.5 million. That was the gross product that they made for TCI, Texas Corrections Industry. So 84.5, okay, in some cases, $89.5 million that they're making on the backs of free prison labor, okay, 109 prison units throughout the state of Texas, okay, but you won't want to put no air conditioning in there to save some lives. Whitmire, liberal ass Democrat John Whitmire, with your old fake fake self. I said it and I meant it. Violating the public's trust. They call you Quitmire because you run to actually do some work for the people. You're gonna get vote your butt up out of there. I said that and I meant that. We have to start speaking truth to these people and putting them on front street and start stop sugarcoating what's going on in the state of Texas. We have collusion. When we talk about wickedness in high places, we're talking about collusion. Look at the Texas Board of Criminal Justice. Remember Dale Wainwright? 
let's talk about Dale Wainwright. Let's talk about Dale Wainwright and his connection with Rudy Giuliani. None of those people that sit on the text of rehabilitation or criminal justice, they all are a part of the corporate capitalist good old boy network. Yeah. They know how to make money, but they don't know how to teach a person or a human being to make a smooth and successful transition back into the society. They don't know how to do that. I didn't learn anything in Texas from those people that operate the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. I sat at the feet of people like Kinetic Justice. I sat at the feet of people like Mary Ratcliffe, the editor of the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. I learned from Amani Sawari, a young, beautiful black sister who's been advocating for us so we have our right to vote. If you think that your vote doesn't mean anything, look at them, look at what's going on in Fort Worth and how them crackers is trying to keep us from voting up there. Oh, you didn't think I knew about that? You didn't think I'm paying attention to what's going on? If our vote didn't mean anything, they wouldn't be so zealously trying to obstruct us and sabotage our access to the polls. And it's all connected. All of these things are interconnected. The suppression of our voting rights, okay? The conspiracy and the collusion in high places to cover up the injustice and abuses that are visited upon modern-day slaves in the state of Texas, Alabama, we had a Department of Justice investigation that told the people in Alabama that the conditions were cruel, inhumane, unusual, and they still didn't. William Barr still didn't do a damn thing, and the Justice Department told them they had a civil rights investigation, and they still ain't did nothing. Human beings are being murdered in the state of Florida in their prisons at an alarming rate. One of the most highest murder rates of prisoners, guards killing human beings in Florida, and they still ain't doing nothing. So this creating space for these conversations is a part of our struggle. But there's going to have to be do, there, there's definitely going to have to be more done. There's going to have to be more Savannah Eldridge's. There's going to have to be more Max Parthesis. There's going to have to be more Comrade Malik's. Prisoners, we have a responsibility. When you get out here, you can't go back to selling drugs and smoking crack and acting crazy because that will just justify them to perpetuate the recidivism in the revolving door of the prison. They'll put me out as a poster child for the reasons why not to change things. Look at what Malik did. He got out and started smoking crack again. He started going out and robbing banks again. They set me up for failure from the get-go. Do you think while I was learning how to be a productive member of society when I was picking them beans and them corn and cutting the grass with an Aggie, they won't even give you a lawnmower. They give you an Aggie, a doll Aggie, and got you hitting on it. And if you won't hit on it good enough, they sitting on horses on with, with Confederate gray uniforms on, with cowboy hats and guns and rifles and telling you, you better hit on it harder, Watson, I'm going to write you a case. I, I faked I the damn seizure on their ass. I got this, having a seizure, and I paid a dude a pack of cookies, and you know what he said? He looked up at the dude in the horse, and I told him to do this. He having a seizure, boss. Yeah, he having a seizure, boss. 
You goddamn right. And they put me on that truck, and I didn't go back out there and work in that field no more. See, that's the reality of what's really going on. You don't want to hear the reality, do you? Say, tell me, do you want to hear the reality? You want to really hear what's really going on down the road to, to our sisters and brothers that's up in there? So not only are they working for free, not only are they being subjected to cruel and inhumane conditions, not only are they be, being denied parole again and again and again, they're being killed. They're being murdered. 19 prisoners. Brother Conrad Malik, um, he's uh, having a little technical difficulty sound like, but... um. You are muted. You are unmuted. Sorry about that, y'all. Um, that was Brother Conrad Malik. Uh, we appreciate Brother Conrad uh, Malik. He's been um, very important to this struggle we've been uh, participating in over the last several years. Uh, Sister Lulu, do we have any uh, questions at this time? Um, I, no, at this time I don't have any questions. Thank you. Okay. Um, all right, everyone, the lady of the hour. Coming up next, um, Sister Savannah, uh, it's my privilege to introduce Savannah. She's been a hard worker, uh, putting in so much work behind the scenes um, to make this Free the 13th event become a reality, just organizing uh, day and night. And uh, Savannah is the founder of the Be Frank for Justice, an organization that supports men and women incarcerated in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice with navigating through the post-conviction process. Uh, Savannah formed Be Frank for Justice when she recognized barriers such as a lack of procedural knowledge and limited access to legal reference material while assisting her brother Frank with his own appeals of a life sentence under the outdated and draconian habitual offender statute in Texas. Through the organization, Savannah advocates for sentence reform and practices that improves indigent defense counsel representation and promotes the legal empowerment of litigants and families. Savannah is an active member of the Texan Prisoners Air Conditioning Advocate, Texas Organizing Project, Texas Criminal Justice Coalition Statewide Leadership Council Steering Committee, as well as TCJC's Women's Justice Coalition. She is a mother of three and has enjoyed a professional career as a nurse for more than 20 years. And it's a pleasure to have Savannah on live from the plantation. Uh, thank you all for having me. You are Ooh, muted. It's hard to find passion from relief, man. He got he got my heart racing coming from. Although you know I've never been in a position where I've had to be. Uh, you are unmuted. Um, you know the cycle of intergenerational incarceration uh, has had a hefty cost on uh, my family. So I do understand um, where his pain. Is coming from. So I salute you, Brother Malik, for all that you do. Um, I wanted to just come on here and briefly speak about uh, next steps in Texas related to amending uh, the 13th Amendment um, in conjunction with uh, the rest of the colleagues on the call. Uh, we recently had a rally on Sunday, October the 25th. Um, so for those who don't know, this is supposed to be a, a part of a five-day event. So we were going to have uh, a four-day virtual session. And then on the fifth day, um, everyone there was basically going to be boots to the ground. And ideally, it would have been for everyone to 
go out in their individual communities on a Friday, but we all know, you know, it's hard to get in sync sometimes. Um, we're all in different time zones. So uh, we felt in Texas that um, it would work better and we'd get better participation to do it on Sunday the 25th. So um, we had a mock prison cell, Texas Prison AC Advocates collaborated with me and they brought their mock prison cell out. Um, if you're not my Facebook friend, uh, you can go to the National Coalition page uh, and view some of the pictures and video from the rally. Uh, we had several elected officials out, uh, which is really our goal because um, just as Representative Holland spoke about um, yesterday, it's really important to get people from both sides of the aisle on this, right? It's a human rights issue. It is cruel and unusual punishment. And um, we need to act and we need to act fast. Um, in Texas, I wanna say with last legislative session, Representative Need did introduce um, House Bill 3720 to try and get a dollar an hour. Um, for the folks who were incarcerated in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, and of course it died. Um, so, you know, we know we have a rough road ahead of us. Um, uh, as we heard on Monday, Colorado was successful, but it was on their second attempt. Uh, so I feel like we just have to, um, we got to choose our battles, right? So we build a strong coalition, right? We get a strategy and we get a plan, and then we move cohesively toward our goal. Uh, and honestly, I think like there should be a whole separate plan for the South. I just like, I've, I'm a Southern girl. I've lived in the South all my life. And I just know like we do things different down here, especially when it comes to certain legislation, right? And I know there have been doors opening in Texas. Um, you know, there are more Republicans who are looking at criminal justice reform, right, and looking at reentry. However, I feel like they're looking at it more from an economic standpoint. So when you talk about letting people out and you talk about reforming the system, right, um, they're always looking at dollars and cents, right? So um, you just got to know who your audience is. And um, I did want to shout out to my colleague, David, uh, Johnson. He's a member of Texas Advocates for Justice. Uh, they're another organization uh, who I'll be partnering with on this journey. Um, Max Parthas, who's been a huge resource of information. If you missed Max's speech um, on Tuesday, please go back and watch that. Um, he's been one of the best teachers in this movement. Um, but again, um, this we I'm so glad that we started this now, right, right before our next legislative session starts in January, because it's the perfect time to garner support and really go into the session with the goal of uh, making change here in the state of Texas. So um, I will yield with that. Um, if anyone has any questions, uh, you can reach me on my personal Facebook page, Savannah Eldridge, or the Beat Frank for Justice. Um, and again, I appreciate everyone for participating. Um, and I hope that you guys got as much out of it as I did. I'm a learner. I'm always uh, listening and learning. And um, I just, I, it's just been a plethora of information. So it's been great. Thank you all. All right. We appreciate um, Savannah.
Uh, Savannah is also a co-host, and of course, she's going to introduce our next speaker. Um, so, Savannah, if you would, please um, go ahead and introduce our next speaker. If, if we don't have any questions, do we have any questions at this time, Lulu? No questions at this time. I think everything is so intense right now. Everybody's just like the edge of their feet. So we're good to go to the next speaker. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Savannah, can you go ahead and bring our next guest on, please? All right. Next up, we have Dennis Kibo. Uh, Dennis Kibo is a speaker, community organizer, artist, abolitionist, and CEO and founder of Gezavara Insights, LLC. Dennis is a native of Brooklyn, New York, raised in many different parts of the U.S. and Puerto Rico. He obtained his master's degree from the universities of Buffalo, Havana, Cuba, and Bahia, uh, Brazil. Dennis has been working with thousands of, of our incarcerated community members and juveniles for the past seven years uh, by devising a curriculum on cultural and social consciousness education. He's been able to educate thousands around the country on self-knowledge and self-actualization. Gizbara now pro provides many educational recreational services and events for the community at large with a focus on success for the youth. Dennis also founded the Amend the 13th Movement in New Jersey, a lobbying strategy to remove the exception clause and add anti-slavery language to the New Jersey Constitution. Mr. Fibo is also a professor of graduate and undergraduate studies in health sciences at NJCU. Welcome, Dennis. And I think he's just now coming in, so we'll give him a second to connect. Um, let me see. Wait, while oh. you... While he's um, connecting, um, I think Malik has a question for you. Mm -hmm. Are you here, Malik? You had a question? Yeah. Hi, Savannah. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Um, first of all, I want to just thank you so much and everyone for allowing me a chance to speak. Uh, I don't want to inter interrupt in uh, Dennis's uh, time, but I really wanted you to kind of um, lay out, and you could do this, uh, text me maybe tomorrow. You and I talk a lot. I want to know what legislation is on the table, because I know from being in Texas so many years, I know that right now is pre-filing time for legislation for the upcoming legislative session. And I just really want to get a breakdown of was there anything on the table that was exciting for us? Do, do we have anything to look forward to in Texas? There's a whole spreadsheet, but just uh, to name a few good time credits, there's lots of focus on parole reform and clean slate bills. And those are the ones that I'm really supporting the most, um, those bills that are uh, giving second chances. So, um, but I'll get with you on those. Okay, thank you so much. And uh, Dennis, welcome. And Lulu, thank you for facilitating. I'm gonna log out and I'll come back on my computer because this is new base. You got a better camera than mine. Holla. <laughs> hey, Dennis. Peace, family, how y'all doing? Great. All right. So, so um, again, Dennis Fribo. Um, I am uh, founded the Amanda 13 movement here in New Jersey. Um, also part of the uh, Abolish Slavery National Network. Myself, along with Brother Max Parthas, we run state operations where we're uh, trying to promote and recruit movements from other states that would allow us to. Um, basically um, snowball its effect of getting as many states as possible to add anti-slavery language to the Constitution. 
Uh, I was just going to talk, I guess, a little bit on my personal end, and then I'll go into, uh, you know, what next for the movement. Um, for myself, working here in Hudson County, New Jersey, with uh, the Department of Corrections, I was contracted to teach uh, a curriculum that I wrote called Culture and Social Consciousness Education. And here we get to talk about self-knowledge, self-actualization, emotional literacy, learn the truth about our history, um, and how to participate civically in the world and, and in our community. So during one of our sessions, I was able to show them uh, the documentary, The 13, by Eva DuVernay. And when the movie finished and I turned the TV off and went back into the group, it was about 60 gentlemen. Um, there was like a, it was like somber. Everybody was sad. Everybody was kind of, you know, their faces were still. And I said, what's the matter? One of the guys goes, yeah, I just learned I was a slave. Right? This is a county jail, so it ain't state prison. But a lot of the brothers there, in and out, everybody knows how that goes. Um, but notice or realize, and it kind of brought the parallel to me for uh, Frederick Douglass and learning how to read and learning, the inf learning information, making a slave untractable and unmanageable, right? And I, and I bring this up with the group. So as we were talking, I said, you know, we could stay sad about this. We can complain about it. Or we're going to do something about it. And I started thinking as I'm talking to them, yeah, I've seen a lot of legislators stand up in the middle of an event and give notice and say, hey, we're here for the people. Anything that you need, you guys can come to us. Um, so I went to the Legislative Black Caucus in the state of New Jersey, and I told them that I thought that we should take on amending the 13th Amendment in the state of New Jersey. At the time, I wasn't really familiar with the process, um, and neither were the legislators when I asked them. Nobody had attempted yet to amend the state constitution. This was in the summer of 2018, Come November 2018, I see the news article that says that Colorado passed the bill. So I got a hold of my fraternity brothers out there, said, can you please find out who's doing this movement in Colorado? And I got a hold of brother Kamal Allen and a brother Jamoki, and we started building. I said, look, I'm going to come out there and visit charters. I want to know how y'all did this. To me, it was symbolic because I got to meet other human beings who put their minds to something and funny enough, the people that laughed at us when we were trying to put this together or people that didn't really think that this would happen, to see that Colorado did it set the bar in the example saying that we all have the ability to do it. If they did it in Colorado, we could do it in our states too. So I ended up organizing a big event. And the brothers from Colorado came out here. Kamar came and he spit uh, his, his information and kind of like, you know, told New Jersey we can do it. Assemblywoman McKnight uh, showed up and announced that they had the bill, ACR 145 for the Assembly, SCR 96 for the Senate. So I'm going to kind of go into what that means and why it was important. First of all, that the bill, uh, a bill itself was born from brothers that decided we wanted to do this. In that group, I wrote the proposal and read it amongst everyone and said, is this what we want to say? Everybody gave thumbs up and this is what we use. And I had them sign as the disenfranchised, right, because for the most part, not going to petition grievance from government while being incarcerated. So um, we had to learn the process and we had to learn it quick because by the time we started to figure out what was actually possible, um, it became a little difficult because we started to look at the Constitution and we're saying, but wait, if we ratified the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, then how come it's not in the New Jersey State Constitution? Lo and behold, we find out over half the states don't have any language in their constitution as part of the ratification process. 
See, back in 1865, when they passed the 13th Amendment, the intention was that every state would write it in their constitution as well. But New Jersey wasn't one of those. So we technically couldn't amend the 13th Amendment. We had to write the language into the constitution with the actual amendment. So in order for us to propose, right, and I'm going to go into kind of like what's the strategy and, um, and what is it that we need to do as a people, as a community, in order to move forward. But I want you to recognize it's a few things first. I know and understand, trust me, I read, I, I've done everything that I need to do to understand the concept, but sometimes we give it a defeatist kind of perspective, whereas the man or the system or the cracker or whitey or whatever may be has so much dominion and control that we're powerless against a piece of paper and some writing. Right? I want to say that again. We are not powerless. Right? And yeah, sometimes the fight is, is tough. Yeah, sometimes we got to bust our ass. And yeah, we know that there's people at the table whose intention, whose uh, uh, motive and ulterior are to enslave and to incarcerate and are to make profit off of people's bodies. But I've been in rooms with these people. And I'm going to say something over that. We got swag over that. We got intelligence over that. For me, love and power Unity, positivity, those are Trump, greed, hate, envy, and all the other feelings all day, every day. We have to make sure that we keep in our mind that we know that we have just as much power when we sit at a table, when you open your mouth and you're speaking to someone that they did, even with whatever title they think they hold. All right? So that's number one, because I'm going to say for a lot of people in the community, for regular Joe Schmo in the corner, He's not going to know how to call a legislator and put political pressure. And all that. That's, not, that's actually probably not even going to happen, right? So how do we make this realistic where everybody at the table has certain roles that they're enacting? If I know that I'm good with my words and I can make a phone call and convince somebody to do something, then, then so be it. But I also, we also need other roles at the table, all right? So here the roles are going to split. We're going to say grassroots and top root. Grassroots effort, meaning from the ground up, from the street, in the trenches, talking to brothers and sisters and elders and youth out on the street and letting them know that this is what's going on and this is what we all need to stand behind. Um, getting collaborations, getting other community-based organizations, getting advocacy groups, uh, any kind of entity that would want to come to the table and say that we all agree that slavery should be illegal in all its conditions and forms. All right? Bringing that coalition around it. Now, how can we bring people around this topic? Number one is that it's a topic that's not polarized. It's not politicized. It's, there's no politics in slavery. It's not polarized where I'm a conservative or a liberal or a Democrat or a Republican or a capitalist or a socialist. It has nothing to do with that. There's one law on this earth, and that's called natural law. And according to natural law, slavery is illegal. Every human being has a right, no matter what, and international law states that it is illegal. That means that it is a violation against human rights for any state in this union to practice slavery. That's number one. But we know the United States doesn't like to play cute with the United Nations, so they try to act as Trump came into power, removed himself from the Human Rights Council, so that they couldn't be held to account, especially that they knew that they were going to start enacting slavery at the border. Now, some people might say, well, slavery back in the day, nah, nah, we're talking about kids getting split from their families, kids getting put in cages, 
his disappearing? I mean, what's so different between now and 1865? And if we're looking at it numbers-wise, what's so different? There's no need to have to convince another. Now, some of us might say, hey, that because you hold on to your philosophies or what may be, at the end of the day, you can hold on to whatever. Slavery is a neutral concept. It is illegal, it is immoral, and it has been said so since the foundation of this country. Just as much that slavery was a, a, a pillar of this country, the anti-slavery and abolitionist movement has also been a pillar. We're not going to let them dictate the narrative at all times. We get to say that during this founding, we also just have a right to be able to show that we want this to be over. All right? So that's removing naysayers. That's removing anybody that wants to politicize it, right? And now bringing it together on human rights allows you to bring people together on a neutral topic. I love this organizing around this concept because a few things started to happen. I would hear of this organization that does all these great things for the community. And I would go to such organization and I say, hey, would you mind making a statement saying that you are against slavery and that you stand for a bill that would add anti-slavery language to the Constitution, and then they start, um, well, we're a 501c3, so we're not sure. Like, all right. I started to see that as you present it to a group, if they decide that they're not going to stand on it or don't make or remain silent on it, I already in my mind know where they stand, not just on this, on any other topic of discussion. And at the end of the day, I'm not going to consider you in my mind when we talk about community organization, because when the time came to stand, you didn't. All right, And because you stood silent, you're complicit. So now for those organizations, and we've had organizations that I would have never imagined. I had a call with all the Jewish brothers and sisters, all elderly white people on a call talking about Black Lives Matter and made a stance on abolishing slavery in the state of New Jersey. So as an organizer, I started to see that it didn't look like anything. It didn't have to be a certain skin color or sexuality or religious base. It has to do with humanity. And at this point, at this level of organizing, I don't give a shit who comes to the table. You can be purple, green, or orange. If you're here to end slavery and you're here to end mass incarceration to allow our nation, our country, our state, and our communities to stand in the world with, it, with our heads high, acknowledging that we know that we don't participate in any of this bullshit. Now, so that's to say grassroots, all right, family? Grassroots means that also as you're organizing, there has to be a strong consideration that you're organizing communities that come from a position or are told that they come from a position of lack. And because we come from that position, it's going to be hard to organize around certain topics and issues. You know, bless the system and technology that we have, Facebook and Instagram, that we're able to promote these things. But it goes a little further because not everybody's on this. And not everybody's going to be able to understand it with just one simple sit-down. People need education, coaching, voter registration, holding people's hands to get to where they got to go. And that requires manpower. That requires phone calls and emails and consistently showing up and being persistent in our community so that we know that we could get rid of it, all right? So grassroots, you have the ability to organize. You have the ability to create collaborations, make statements and have other organizations and entities also stand on such statement. And here in New Jersey, we got almost 100 organizations to stand, uh, and that allowed us to give us a stronger stance when the, when the elected officials were going to sponsor. Now, this is top route, right? 
You're going to end up needing someone in the Senate and someone in the Assembly to sponsor a bill, all right? Now, this bill has already been written. Why? Because we got Colorado, we got Utah, we got uh, Nebraska, we got New Jersey. We already have states that have already pushed the bill up at the state level. All you have to do is literally find and replace all and modify, right? You might not want this one sentence, so you want another, but at the end of the day, we know that we want to end it. So depending on, especially for grassroots, you have to know, first and foremost, what is the process to amend your state constitution, and what does the constitution actually say about slavery? For example, Georgia says, no mention of slavery and voluntary servitude is, is illegal, a legal punishment for a crime. Um, New Jersey has no mention. Uh, Colorado had a mention, so they amended the sentence in that one. So depending on that, you're going to have to campaign if there's no mention of slavery or like it is in California, there is the mention of slavery being illegal, but, slave, but slave, involuntary servitude is legal with punishment for crime. So California has to campaign on involuntary servitude. Georgia, even though there's no mention of slavery, is slavery and involuntary servitude. New Jersey, because there's no mention, putting the entire sentence into the Constitution. All right? So there's different ways that you're going to end up inserting the anti-slavery language, right? Having the sponsor for each. And then what is the process after that? Most states are going to require a ballot question. But a state like New York doesn't require a ballot question to amend the state constitution. It is just done by the legislative vote. So they might have a little bit of an easier process because they don't have to campaign to the whole state, more like getting people to campaign on legislators to make sure that they vote yes to abolish slavery. All right? So I'm going to explain the New Jersey process real quick just so that you can see how this was plugged in. So now I have what I have, my petition. It was written or it was written by myself in conjunction with our incarcerated community members. We all agreed we used it. Now I have something in writing. I go up to the legislators. I said, I have a petition. I have a proposal signed by all these people who find themselves in incarcerated conditions. You don't have to do it that way. You can do it however you want. But I thought it would have more power coming from them. Once given to them, they decided as the caucus that they said they were going to write a bill and sponsor it. So now because we need both the Senate and the Assembly, Senator Ronald Rice of New Jersey proposed SR 96 to have the bill on the Senate side to abolish slavery and voluntary servitude. And Assemblywoman Angela McKnight, who proposed ACR 145. And the C's in both of them mean concurrent, meaning that they have to run together, right? Because it has to pass both Assembly and Senate. And once it passes, it goes to the vote uh, of the state at the ballot. So now those are introduced. And once they're introduced, they go into committees. Every bill that's introduced goes into it, gets assigned to a committee, goes into that committee, and that committee discusses or it leaves open for public discourse to allow people to say that they either want to amend that, uh, that bill or they want to strike language out of it. However, whatever changes need to happen, happen in committee. Once finalized, and it looks like everybody's happy with that final product, they send it up for vote in the Senate, and the same thing happens in the Assembly. Assembly committee goes up for vote into the assembly. Now, the entire Senate of the state of New Jersey votes, which we coming up hopefully in December, and you have the entire um, assembly of the state of New Jersey who would vote. Combined, it's about 120 people. All right? If you really start to pay, you know, Texas is a way bigger state, but some states, when you start to count the amount of legislators, if you have to put pressure on both the Senate and the assembly, if I know I have 120 people, then I know that 
we can all who we all are going to be able to focus on. We already know that certain assembly people and senators would automatically be down with this because they're already active in the community and said that they would do so. And then reaching out to those senators and those assembly people who might be on the fence or haven't made any comment about what's going on. Another beautiful byproduct of the Men the 13th movement in this manner is that now you're asking legislators, do you stand for slavery or against it? And if you look at any single political vote that's taken place, whether it be Colorado, Utah, Nebraska, New Jersey, every single vote has been unanimous in abolishing slavery because what elected official would dare stand up and say that they stand for it? Now, we've had a couple of knuckleheads around the country try to stand up and do it, but none of y'all arguments hold water and your arguments were corny. They don't even warrant, <coughs> excuse me, they don't even warrant a response, all right? If you're going to stand there and argue for slavery, then you're going to have to go do it over there because there's not really any mention in the humanity of it all. See, people need to understand that the 13th Amendment and the conversations that were happening had to do with dehumanization. The only way you could be enslaved is if you weren't a human in law. It also ties racist structure, racism as a structure, institutionalized, and which is why there's a high incarceration rate of melanated people. Melanin was only important back then because we had to stand in the sun. Today, it doesn't look like that anymore. For it to continue to try to reflect, it shows the bullshit romantic idealism that these people have in order to try to keep some type of Confederate America that they wish that they had kept and, and losing the war. All right? So we're, we're not arguing against logic. We're, argue, we're arguing against stupidity. And at the same time, we have the ability to move with heart. Because when you start to move with heart, somebody, greed comes, falls, falls away. Evil falls away. Because you have the ability to show and prove that we can do it. All right? So now, once the Senate and the Assembly push and vote, we go to the final vote, which will be for the state of the people. Only reason Colorado failed was because, or the main reason Colorado's vote failed was because the language was confusing. Let's get, that, let's get that straight. They didn't lose because the state voted to keep it. Colorado was the first state to do it. So let's give them some, some room to, for the failure, right? They only failed because the language wasn't clear when people went to vote on the ballot. But now you have Utah, you have Nebraska, you have New Jersey. If any other state jumps on board, you're going to have already four references on how to get this language right the first time. All right. And then the other is understanding the process to amend, because here in New Jersey was supposed to be on the November 2020 ballot. But the legislators were unaware that they had to, a public hearing had to be held. See, those were those, one of those little caveats in our state constitution that's not going to be similar to other state, uh, state constitutional amendment processes. So re read it. Read your own constitution and see what the process is to amend for yourself. All right. For, for that state. Once it is the ballot, then the people vote and we push on. Now, if anyone pays attention in Colorado from 2018 up until today, nothing's really changed since the language changed. And I bet every single one of us can open up somewhere in the law where we see a law that has, is not being practiced or enforced. And what, what does it take to enforce the law? When you sue somebody and hit their pockets. Because now once slavery has become illegal, the next would be the legal push which is what's currently happening in the state of Colorado with, with four incarcerated community members suing Core Civic and Geo Group for practices of slavery. So now Core Civic and Geo Group 
which are both multi-billion dollar companies and industries who have the ability to hire all the top-notch lawyers in the world are going to try to get these people to put feet in their mouth and try to argue against natural law. Now, once Colorado wins that lawsuit, now we know the same way if I said you were going to start your state movement and I gave you the New Jersey proposal, then uh, you could do the same thing with the lawsuit. Here goes the lawsuit. Change, find and replace all on Word and put your state or uh, whatever name on there and submit it in for that lawsuit because you're going to have the model and the mold to know what to do. The moment they start hearing the lawsuits are coming, as any other company would do, they're going to have to try to reorganize and restructure. See, CoreCivic trying to act cute who used to be CCA, correct? They think they're cute changing their name. Like every other company who gets caught out there and try to rebrand so that nobody catches them, right? So they change their name, they rebrand, they modify. It doesn't mean they're going away. It doesn't mean they're going away because Obama had banned private prisons, and they had enough time between Obama doing that and Trump coming in to transform into the construct of community-based corrections. They're going to keep renaming it, and we're going to have to keep coming back, but we can't do it unless the language in your state reflects the absolute total abolishment of slavery in all its conditions and all of its forms, all right? Um, so, again, just quick, Assembly and Senate, get your, get your people together, find two people, one person from each. They could find co-sponsors or sponsors on the bill for themselves as legislators, but push them to be able to get the bill. Once you have that bill, now grassroots goes full force, educating, holding workshops, registering people to vote, right? And this is a, definitely a dope way to get people to register because I'm going to say, hey, brothers and sisters, let's register to vote. For what? Especially now that the election's over, right? What are we going to vote for? Most people don't want to hear that. I don't, I don't care about voting, but now if I say, yo, we're voting to end slavery. What you mean? You have to vote to end slavery. So we need, it is our duty and our responsibility as the descendants to make sure that we do that and hit that to vote. So it puts a, it's going to put heat on voter registration. It's going to put heat on electoral system to make a stance, right? It puts heat on organizations that claim that they're about the people, but don't end up doing or don't end up standing. Then now we have a clear slate. Everybody can see that that organization is full of shit. And now we know it, it basically kind of just gives you clarity. It shows you who's who, who's where, who's doing what. And when most we know who's about righteousness and are actually getting the work done, there's no reason it couldn't happen like it did in Colorado. I met these brothers and sisters face to face. They have skin, blood, they fart, and they pee just like us. And they did it. They did it, family. So every single one of us needs to get on it. Now, I'm going to say this. The question of justice, and I always bring it up, and Brother Kamar does too. When we talk about what would justice look like without profit incentive, what would justice look like without profit incentive? As a community, we still need to hold that discussion. Because just because we're ending slavery and profit on black and brown bodies doesn't mean that we don't have internal issues and we need to learn what justice looks like for us and integrate that conversation because the other part of it is as much as we complain about the system, it ain't going nowhere either, right? So how do we enact who we want to be as a people but do so responsibly where we have to also interact with a system that we put our own tax dollars into so we're not going to act like it's a separate system. We pay for it, too. All right? 
Now, with that understanding, if you want to learn more, I'm the 13th NJ on Facebook, on Instagram. I'm Dennis Thibo. I'm Brooklyn Body on Instagram. Um, anything you need, we're here for you. AbolishSlavery.us. Uh, reach out. Uh, fill out the form if you want more inquiry, and we will reach out to you and try to coach. So, uh, and try to figure out. We already have a lot of um, <clears throat> written down, and they'll be published on the website soon. Well, we're going to have a whole database. Eventually, there'll be an interactive map where somebody could kind of like highlight over the state and see where they stand, what does the Constitution say about slavery, what efforts are happening, if there's a bill already sponsored, and what organizations have signed on, and individuals of, of notice that have signed on to say that they stand in, about, in completely abolishing slavery. Uh, another quick point before I close out. Amendment 13 is a state-based movement. All right. Amend the 13th is a state-based movement. We, not, we cannot amend the U.S. Constitution. We must repeal and replace it. So we've been in communication as a national network with uh, Senator Merkley of Oregon, who's proposing uh, repeal and replace of the 13th Amendment, supposedly by the end of November. Now, we know how the federal government works. I know y'all seen the, the, the clown show that happened during the anti-lynching law of trying to be proposed by Ms. Harris and Cory Booker, right, where it became trying to convince people about something that we know is inhumane, right? So I'm not going to have 100% faith that that group that's dominating that, that Senate is going to actually listen to a proposed repeal and replace of the 13th Amendment. Therefore, I will continue my fight for the state of New Jersey. And if it happens to happen, good for me. But I'm not going to sit here and wait on anybody, right? We know that it needs to end right now. So I'm going to move right now. And if Senator Merkley steps up and actually does it and pushes it on the table, then guess what? I'll stand behind Senator Merkley. And as I'm campaigning here in the state of New Jersey, I'll let the New Jerseyans know that we also have it coming up on the federal level. And that means that Booker and Menendez here in New Jersey need to cut their shit and stand with Amendment 13 because they know what's going on and they're not saying anything about it. As of, the, as of today, every single legislator in the state of New Jersey got a packet on their desk, and as soon as they open it, it says Amendment 13th Amendment. And this is via legislative process. This wasn't me sending an email or getting somebody to do it. This is the procedure. Every legislator, and I'll say every single one of these things are victories on public record. On public record, you're all acknowledging that there has to be a conversation about ending slavery. And now on public record, in writing, so that the state would hear public hearings, make these things public and let them put it on the record so that it's known and that we can reference it in the future because this fight will not end with us. The next generations coming along are going to need what we did now to be on record. Another thing you could do is getting cities, townships, and counties to stand with you in your state as you're, as you're campaigning. So here in New Jersey, we got Jersey City, Patterson, Atlantic City, Roselle, Hoboken, and Morristown, and we got other cities coming up. So it doesn't really do nothing for it, but just give it clout. We just had these cities put on record that they stand and they acknowledge that slavery is still real and it must be ended. One of the best arguments towards it was that back in the day, it was a gradual abolition. I'm going to say it again. It was supposed to be a gradual abolition with the convict clause being one of those kind of bastions that will hold on all the way to the dear end. The fight never ended. That gradualness took way too long. And now we know that we need to stand. The fight is now, family. There's, for me, there's nothing else that's more important 
Because in order to get our community forward, we need economy. Like the brother said on the call before, slavery wasn't just the visuals, it's an economy. So now if I put all these bodies behind the wall, those bodies make an economy for another institution, and it doesn't bring that money home. We're not going to have liberation without our economy being where it needs to be, and we can't have economy if our families are not whole, if our fathers are not home, if our brothers and sisters don't have what they need in order to move forward. And I know that because I hold a lot of brothers and sisters' hands when they're coming out of these out of the jail and prison, and I know how almost impossible it is for them to move forward. I understand why that recidivism rate is so high. Shit, I want to do it for them. I want to go rob something for them because I don't know what else to tell them. We're not going to sit here and pretend that there's resources available for people coming out of those conditions and circumstances. And since they've already acknowledged that what they did was wrong and they've already acknowledged that it was inhumane, then they should acknowledge what needs to get done now. Brother Dennis, we've got to wrap it up, man. We need to have a conversation on what needs to go on. All right, family? So with that being said, I love y'all. Peace, y'all. Hey, thank you, uh, Brother Dennis. Uh, we have about 15 minutes left. Uh, we're going to bring on, um, Brother, the, the person whose idea was uh, behind the Free the 13th rally. Before we bring him on, though, I just wanted to make a few comments. And I also had one question for Brother Dennis, and we'll wrap it up. Um, in 2016, we had nationwide work strikes in this country. That was um, the idea for that came from behind the fence. It came from the plantation. 2018, we had a nationwide work strike. It came from behind the plantation. In 2020, there was the National Freedom and Justice Day. That idea came from the plantation. Um, this idea, uh, Freedom 13, it came from the, the plantation. And I'm, I'm making that point because I want to make sure that when we organize and when we make moves that people understand that this is not something that people on the outside can just do for us. You know, we always want to emphasize that. And the reason why I'm making that point is because as I was listening to Brother Dennis, and I thought about something that uh, Dr. Claude Anderson said, he said that the United States Supreme Court is the most racist institution in this country, and it is the gatekeeper for the oppression, gatekeeper for racism in this country, which, which is where we're receiving our oppression. And so as I'm listening to Brother Dennis, and I heard him talk about the legislative process, and he said that we have to have legislators involved. And we know that the legislators are the ones who enacted these laws in the first place. Not the same ones, but these ones that are in place are the ones who either have a responsibility to um, abolish it, repeal it, or amend it or whatnot. Um, he also talked about filing lawsuits. That's the judicial process. And so both of these institutions are institutions that they control. And when he mentioned the fact that there is an economy in here inside the prisons, what I was interested in knowing is, aside from these things that you all are doing in the legislative arena and what you all anticipate doing in the judicial arena, what type of efforts are you all doing to assist with the people, whether it's in New Jersey or in other places around the country? Because we have to stop the economy on the inside, too, and that's why we use work strikes, and that's why we use boycotts. And I didn't hear you mention that, and so I just wanted to, to, to get some hear, hear what your uh, – what your comments on that? What are the guys? Did they participate in the 2016 work strike? Did they participate in the 2018 work strike in New Jersey? 
and what is the, what is it that you and your organizers and the coalitions that you're working with, what is y'all's position on that moving forward? Because that has to be part of this too. That has to be part of our leverage, our negotiating strategy. But that is slavery. When that the, that labor is slavery. It's not the Thirteenth Amendment is not slavery. Uh, these amendments that we're working on in the state, those are not slavery. When the people are doing this labor inside of this economy and enriching others. So that's what I wanted to hear you uh, comment on, please, uh, briefly, and then we're going to bring on Brother Kent to close us out. Yeah, I'm going to say with the work in my organization, I'm the one that's in the inside, right? So I'm the, if anybody's promoting any of this stuff, it's me. Uh, the, the brothers and sisters give me a lot of respect, and so does the you know the staff at the at the jail because they allow me to bring this information in and build with people. Getting any efforts to organize the brothers from the inside, and this is county level as well. It's not state prison. There's a lot of other organizations doing that work. When we talk about divestment, my thing is is that there's so many fights at the table. We need a whole lot more people active in order to take a concerted effort to be able to do these things. As one or two or three individuals, after a while, we start to dr we get drowned out by the noise at that point. Like, yeah, FIBA, we'll listen to you for this, we'll listen to you for that. But if it's always just me coming to the table, and I know everybody that does organizing work knows how difficult it is to get people to come to the table. The message is there, the action, as the brother was speaking before in the, in the jail, it's hard. It's hard in prison to get brothers to wanna just Stop and do continue to do what they're doing. I tell them all the time. We got empty rooms. I say, yo, I'll come here and meet with y'all. Whatever y'all need to get it going, because we sit, we imprison a lot of brothers and sit down and waste time and don't want to organize. But there are a lot, and I've met. There's a, a shout out to Transformative Justice Initiative here in New Jersey. These are all brothers that just came home, and they came home with their with their degrees. These brothers are. I'm just so in love with what they're doing. They're doing the whole meet them at the gate concept. They're trying to get, you know, whatever resources for the brothers on the inside. They're advocating on all levels. So, yes, there is a lot of fight at the table. For me personally, to get involved in every single fight, I'm going to say no. I'm more about systems and coding. You know what I mean? So if I feel like I want this is part of the coding that needs to get changed, all my attention will focus on that. Because once that gets changed, the conversation on labor on the inside is going to be a different fight than me going to fight it right now. Because if I go to fight it right now, whether it be through administration, whether it be through the courts, whether it be through trying to get the brothers, nobody's going to acknowledge it as a real thing. But once I have it on paper and there's been public statements made about it and things are moving and now we said the laws changed, now the conversation's different. I don't got to waste as much breath about convincing someone about slavery when I can already prove it's illegal in the state constitution. That's where I'm at with it. Uh, thanks a lot. I appreciate um, you uh, clarifying on that. Once again, it's been a powerful day. Uh, so many great speakers. We appreciate people just giving those of us behind these walls, behind these fences, and these cages, um, just just some of your time. You know, even that, just just your time, just your attention, uh, listening to the things that we have to say, um, allowing us to make our contributions and voices being heard. Um, we have our own voices. You know, we don't need anyone to speak for us. What we need for people to do is like what Abolition Today, Brother Max, and Yousef, uh, Savannah, and the other organizers and people who have platforms is to extend their platforms to us so that we can lift up our own voice. And so we're just so grateful. Um, it's been just four days of, of, of 
powerful people, impactful people uh, organizing, uh, talking about the 13th Amendment, understanding that slavery is still alive, uh, amplifying that conversation. And so we appreciate all of that. And so at this time, I would like to bring um, Brother Kent on. Uh, he's also uh, behind enemy lines. And we just want him to to uh, make the closing statements on Free the 13th. Brother Kent. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, man, I, I just want to say... I just want to say I want to thank everybody, man. I want to thank everybody for uh, for coming with their A game. I want to thank all, especially the brothers, especially the brothers that uh, that's coming from the plantations, man. That sacrifice, that 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 put forth their time, their efforts to get on this thing and do this. It took a lot to just do that to the public, you know, for the public. You know, um, I wanted all of the uh, speakers, all of the organizers, man. For everything that they did, it took it took about it took about two months of us coming together, going through what we went through and everything to uh to organize it. But it came together, man. And I swear, it look, it, it it's beautiful, man. You know, so um, within these past few days, I believe if a person ain't knew nothing, if a person ain't know anything about the the Thirteenth Amendment, I believe if they if they took notes and they showed up every day, I'm pretty sure they very well uh. uh known of what it is now, you know, but I want to say thank you to all of the organizations, all of the, um, all of the speakers. I want to say, uh, to all of the organizers, I want to thank everybody for showing up every day. You know, it was, a, it was, a, it was, a, it was a wonderful thought and idea that I had to do this, here, but it couldn't have been materialized if it wasn't for all of you all. You feel what I'm saying? Now the next step, the next step is for everybody that paid attention everybody that came for these past few days to take this message to another level by, by continuing spreading throughout your neighborhood, throughout, uh, wherever you at, man, you know? So I just want to I just want to thank everybody, man. And I just want to say, man, y'all tune in next time. Ain't no telling, ain't no telling when we finna pop up with another one, man, you know, cause we did so well this time, man, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to follow up with another one, man, some kind of way. Continue organizing, continue preaching, continue spreading this message, man. You know, until every every one of these slaves is free. You know, so I just want to say thank you all again, man. And y'all keep y'all head up, y'all stay peaceful, man. Real man. All right, brother Max, you have any parting words uh, before you get ready to close us out? Savannah, uh, Kinetic Justice, anyone still on? We have about yes five minutes left. If anyone wants to, uh... I, I just. Echo the sentiments of Brother Kent. A lot of people came to bed together across all kinds of boundaries to make this happen, and it happened. And this is going to be a teaching tool that will be around for a very long time. If you didn't know, now you know. Make sure you tune in this Sunday at 7 p.m. to hear Abolition Today, right before the election. We'll have uh, our presidential candidate will be our guest, as well as several other candidates that are running on abolitionist platforms. Peace. Thanks, family. Really quickly, don't forget there's a rally in Huntsville, Alabama, Friday. I can't remember the time, but go to the Free Alabama Movement uh, page. Epic has a rally also Friday, uh, so go to Epic's Facebook page. Several rallies um, across the nation, so uh, if you're in the area, please take part in those and support the movement. Brother Ben New, should I take us out with a song? Yes, sir. Please do.
All right, Stephanie Todd, keep your eyes on the prize. Thank you. 
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.